Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. Jonathan Tin here. Today on the podcast, I sit down with Professor Iforma Ajunwa to discuss the intersection of law and workplace technologies. We cover a wide array of topics, including hiring algorithms, video hiring analysis, and worker wellness programs. This was a fascinating topic for me to research and discuss. I hope you enjoy the episode. And as always, subscribe, share, leave us a review, and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Jonathan Tin, and today I'm excited to welcome Professor Iforma Ajunwa to the studio. Professor Ajunwa is an assistant professor of labor and employment law in Cornell's Industrial and Labor Relations School. She is also an associate faculty member at Cornell Law School and a faculty associate at the Bergman Klein Center at Harvard University. Her research focuses on the intersection of law and technology in the workplace with a particular focus on the ethical governance of workplace technologies. Professor Ajunwa earned a PhD in sociology from Columbia University and a law degree from the University of San Francisco School of Law. Prior to her academic career, she was a practicing attorney in both California and Asia, working on business law and intellectual property law. Professor Ajunwa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So when we think about your primary area of study, the interplay of technology and work, we typically think of technology as a force for good. In my last interview with Hernan Sainz from Bain & Company, we discussed how technology can allow companies to create more economic value. But you have a more nuanced view on technology in the workplace. Can you share with our listeners how you first became interested in this new frontier of technology and work? So my approach to this research area was a bit circuitous. Uh, as a graduate student at Columbia University, my dissertation research was on the reentry uh, area, looking at reentry of the formerly incarcerated. And in the process of interviewing formerly incarcerated individuals, a lot of them said the same thing, which is, I hate computers. And in talking with them, I came to understand what they meant. What they meant was that they were being excluded from work by automated hiring. So the fact that now they had to submit all their applications online on a computer meant that they never got to hand their resume to a human manager. And they never really got the chance to explain either their past crimes or their rehabilitation. So that got me thinking because prior to that, I'd always thought of technology as something that could actually level the playing field for humans. The common wisdom, right, is that humans have biases, whether we're conscious of them or not, whether they're implicit or explicit. And that especially in hiring, these biases can play out in ways that disadvantage formerly incarcerated people. But here was a formerly incarcerated individual or several individuals telling me that actually automated hiring, a form of automated decision making, was actually putting them at a disadvantage. So that got me to thinking about the ways in which new technologies in the workplace may actually be having an unintended effect or maybe being used in a way in ways that were unethical and that could impact different categories of people in a more negative way. The majority of the interview is going to discuss the gaps in the existing regulatory structure for technology and work to coexist. But before we go there, 
Let's give our listeners some background. What are the existing regulations that oversee labor and employee relations? Things like OSHA and the NLRA. Can you take us through some of the fundamental motivations and outcomes of this legislation? I think the most important thing for our listeners to know in the context of this podcast is that most of the framework we have now to protect workers in the workplace, that framework was put in place prior to the existence of much of the technology we have now. So much of that framework did not contemplate and could not really conceptualize the sorts of issues that could arise from the use of the technologies that we do have now. As a result, that is a really the main issue and the main root of the types of limitations we have when we look at the legal frameworks. So a lot of the legal frameworks we do currently have, and you've mentioned a few already, which is um, the National Labor Relations Act, and that's really to govern collective bargaining. It's really to allow workers to collectively bargain as part of unions. And then you also mentioned OSHA, which is really providing safe working conditions for workers. But we also have other legal frameworks like Title VII, and these these fall under what is commonly thought of as employment law. So you have Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and Title VII really prohibits discrimination on the basis of race and gender in the workplace. You also have the Americans with Disabilities Act, ADA, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of a disability. And then you have also other newer ones like the the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, which really just came into law in 2009. And this prohibits genetic discrimination in the workplace. And then you also have obviously the PDA, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act. And so these are really federal laws. So it's really important to understand that While you do have federal laws that protect certain categories, so we call them protected classes, there are also divergent laws, a diversity of laws, state laws. So several states have new laws that they have also put in place, some of which are more protective even than the federal laws. But it's really kind of a piecemeal type protection. What I would argue are the biggest limitations for the current legal framework when it comes to workplace rights for workers is that there is a lack of law really addressing the privacy of the worker. So really addressing the use of surveillance technologies by employers. And as a result, you know, workers, as my co-authors and I have argued, really have no legal protections. They really have no legal protections to preserve their privacy. So in our article, Limitless Worker Surveillance, my co-authors and I argue that as a result of the lack of legal protections for worker privacy, workers are actually more opened up to discrimination and more opened up to having their health information be used against them through things like wellness programs, etc., So let's dive into worker surveillance, or the quantified worker, which is the title of your upcoming book. Can you define what is the quantified worker, and what were its origins? So when I say the quantified worker, what I mean is that the modern-day worker is quantified in a manner and to a degree that I believe is very much unseen in history. So, of course, the employer has always been invested 
in ensuring the productivity of the worker and in measuring it and quantifying it. And so that really came to a head with Taylorism. You know, at the start of the 19th century, you had Francis Winslow Taylor, who created a system, scientific management, which was a way of really creating a system of management that would maximize efficiency and would maximize productivity. And for him, he felt that this would actually increase prosperity, not just for employers, but for the workers, because whatever gains in productivity was acquired could also be transferred back to the worker. In his case, he had a stopwatch, right? He was measuring workers' output with a stopwatch in terms of like the time it took them to complete tasks. You know, workers were being monitored in terms of like the interactions in the workplace. And I say that we now have a greater quantification of workers because instead of the stopwatch, we have things like productivity applications, which can be installed on your computer, on your phone, or even we have a wearable technology, which actually is one on the body of the worker and which can track the worker's movements in the workplace. And we have workplace wellness programs that can also track the lifestyle, the health behaviors of the workers. So now the worker is really being quantified, I would say, in all manners that encompass not just the work itself, but also that encompass the health risks of the worker and other aspects of behavioral output of the worker. And I think if you look at the history of some of the quantified worker, it really started with the blue-collar workers. But today, it could be argued that white-collar workers are under equally as much surveillance while they work on their computers, with things like keystroke capture and chat history monitoring. Yes, that's correct. And to me, that's somewhat of a, of a puzzle because, you know, blue-collar workers are actually more likely to be unionized. So in some ways, blue-collar workers could, through collective bargaining, limits some of the surveillance that they are subjected to. But white-collar workers are less likely to be unionized, and that makes it harder for them to collectively bargain for more privacy rights in the workplace. So as people like Elizabeth Arden has argued in her book, Private Government, many workplaces are essentially run like mini-government, with employers having free reign to institute any surveillance regime that they would want, and with workers having little bargaining power to object to them. Maybe we can get into a, a few examples of worker surveillance that has potentially, in your mind, gone too far. Right. Once again, I want to concede that the employer certainly has a vested interest in monitoring workers. And that vested interest is ensuring that workers are being productive during work hours. However, surveillance can become so pervasive and so invasive as to really be counterproductive. So for example, one case coming out of California involved the Zora app. And, and this app was an app that could be put on a phone and that would track the worker's location at all times, as well as their speed. And one woman, this was the Arias case, she found that her supervisor had been surveilling her even in her off hours. And she knew this because even though she had turned off the app over the weekend, the supervisor, when she returned to work on the next Monday, 
told her that he knew exactly where she had been over the weekend and even how fast she had been driving. So that sort of surveillance really raises a question as to its potential for harassment and also as to whether it is counterproductive because, of course, the woman felt violated by this level of surveillance and she sought to remove the app from her phone and was subsequently fired. And this was why she brought suit. Now, that that case was settled in favor of the worker. But it's important to really understand that this case happened in California. And California actually is one of the states that has greater worker protections. So the outcome of the case could have been very different had it happened in another state. And I guess moving from managing employees and to looking at the overall wellness of an employee, a large part of your research, as you mentioned, was touches on employee wellness programs, which are designed to encourage healthy habits, whether it's uh, curbing smoking or encouraging more exercise. And on the surface, they seem innocuous enough. They seem almost like a net positive for the overall organization. Can you first explain a little bit more about what is a worker wellness program and potentially what do we need to be worried about? So a worker wellness program is usually a program instituted by a corporate entity. So especially large corporations with, you know, thousands of workers usually have these programs because they are designed to promote a healthy lifestyle for the workers. And their main function is to decrease healthcare costs because healthier workers means less people taking sick leave and then also less people, you know, using the healthcare provided by the employer. Now, especially in the US where we don't have a universal healthcare or even a single payer system, the idea of a workplace wellness program is certainly reasonable and certainly foreseeable and seems to make sense for the employer who basically bears the brunt of the cost of health care. And of course, I certainly recognize their interests in minimizing their health care costs. But several questions remain. The first is that the research that has been done on workplace wellness program has not necessarily shown a strong indication of a return on investment and ROI when it comes to the investment the companies make on those programs. So there is a question on whether they really truly are effective at reducing healthcare costs. But that aside, there's also the issue of potential privacy violations arising from the health data that is collected as part of employee wellness programs. And that is because a lot of workplace wellness programs use outside vendors And many of those vendors can and do sell the health data collected from workers with or without their permission. And frankly, usually without even their knowledge. So that represents a true privacy issue for workers and could also open them up to employment discrimination or even genetic discrimination as a result of perhaps the employer becoming aware of some health issues harbored by the worker. And, you know, you might wonder, you know, why are workplace wellness programs able to sell, you know, the wellness data or the health data? You know, some people might think that laws like the Health Information Portability and Accountability Act, which is HIPAA, might prevent such transfer of data without the knowledge of the worker. But that's not necessarily the case 
because the limitations of HIPAA that it applies really to healthcare providers. And the question remains whether wellness programs are classified as being a healthcare provider or can be classified as being a healthcare provider. So wellness programs are really in a legal gray area. That means that they could potentially sell this data, and many of them do, without the knowledge of the workers. But shouldn't HIPAA protect workers anyways, since many of these programs are attached to health insurance programs and it's health information at the end of the day? That's a really good question. So when the programs are attached to a health insurance provider, then the consensus generally is that HIPAA would protect the transfer of the information. So you still have to understand that HIPAA still has limitations because the HIPAA is not preventing all transfer of the information. It's just preventing the transfer of the information for certain purposes. So under HIPAA, actually, you can still transfer the information for payment purposes, right? So when a worker has, like, for example, a large medical procedure, which would be paid for by the employer or the employer's health insurance, that information can still be transferred to the employer for payment purposes. That's actually under HIPAA. So even when HIPAA applies, there are limitations. So when HIPAA doesn't apply, there are also ways that employers can get the wellness program vendors to respect employee privacy, and that's through contractual obligations. So they can sign essentially a vendor form saying we will not sell this data or we're going to basically treat this data like it was HIPAA protected. But all that being said, you have to understand that there are incentives for employers to essentially allow the wellness program vendors to own the data. And what do I mean by that? A lot of wellness program vendors, especially ones that are not attached to health insurance programs, will provide their services for a discounted amount in exchange for acquiring the data, the health information data, because it can actually make more profit off the healthcare data itself. And so we touched a little bit on the discount. And as an employee, what options do I have if my company is rolling out a wellness program and they're potentially offering incentives in order to sign up? Right. So I would very much encourage all employees to read the fine print for any workplace wellness programs and very much understand what data is being collected, for what reason, how that data will be stored or protected, and also whether that data will be sold. So reading the fine print is very important. So I'm not saying that I'm categorically against all workplace wellness programs, although I still do question the efficacy. I'm saying, however, that there is room for caution, particularly in regards to how the data being acquired is being used. One thing I'm also thinking, which I haven't necessarily seen being done, is the potential for collective bargaining. So workers could actually band together as part of a union to obtain concessions from the employer regarding how the health data they give up will be used. That can actually be part of collective bargaining if they want it to be. I haven't seen much of that. And I think part of the reason for that is because there hasn't really been much education in terms of workers realizing 
how much information really is being collected and also like the potential for harms to come from that information. So I think, you know, union leaders do have a role to play there in ensuring that if workers are part of wellness programs, they can both benefit from some potential health benefits that could come out from the program while also preserving their health information privacy. Yeah. And I think, I guess it's an interesting situation that we're in as more white collar workers are becoming under these wellness programs. And I think only 6% of the private sector workforce is unionized. Are there any other avenues outside of collective bargaining that you would recommend for a an employee? I think, you know, just really understanding what you're signing up for, right? Because, you know, most workplaces allow you to opt out. So, you know, opting out, if you feel that after reading the fine print and reading the provisions, it doesn't work for your particular situation or bargaining with your employer to see if you can affect the change in terms of how the information will be handled. Of course, that's harder to do if you're one single worker. For the single or solitary worker, really the option is opting out. And so let's get back into the start of the employee journey into the hiring process. You've written a recent paper entitled The Paradox of Automation as an Anti-Bias Intervention. The paper draws on the use of algorithms in hiring. Can you explain first what is algorithmic hiring and where it may potentially fall short of our expectations? So when people hear algorithms, and especially the layperson, they tend to think, oh, that's so complicated. What could that possibly be? But it's really important to understand that an algorithm, you know, which is attributed to a Persian mathematician named Akharizmi, really just means a step-by-step process, a step-by-step mathematical process for solving any given problem. So it's you're really thinking about putting in variables in the input to obtain a desired output. So it's really just a step-by-step solution-based process. When it's computerized, then it can actually solve those problems faster. And then you also have what are called machine learning algorithms. And these are kind of like supercharged algorithms in that these are algorithms that can actually create new algorithms. What does that mean? It means a person creates the first algorithm, but as that algorithm you know, which is a machine learning algorithm, is solving problems. It's learning from the problems that it's solving, and then it's creating new algorithms de novo as it goes along. And those new algorithms may not actually necessarily be explainable or interpretable to the human perception. But what is important to understand is that algorithms are created by people. So the focus a lot of times is on the machine learning algorithms and the fact that they are creating these de novo algorithms. But we still have to understand that at the beginning point, even the machine learning algorithms are created by people. And my paper, The Paradox of Automation as Anti-Bias Intervention, is really focusing on what I call data objectivity. And that is really the belief that automated decision-making is always better than human decision-making. And this belief really comes out of, I would say, 
social scientific research and also computer science research, which is that social scientific research has really demonstrated that humans have biases, whether we're aware of them or not, whether they're implicit bias or explicit bias. And that, as a result, our decision making is oftentimes tainted by these biases. So even when we are trying to make decisions with a well-intentioned goal in mind, those decisions can be corrupted or tainted by our biases. But then the flip side of that is the extreme where we believe now that data is objective and that the use of data in algorithmic decision-making processes will always result in an objective result that is somehow completely free of bias. So I guess I basically challenge this belief in my paper and I use hiring as a case study to really demonstrate how this is perhaps a naive presumption. Because in a lot of employment spaces, for a lot of corporations, there's a move to automated hiring as basically an anti-bias intervention. They have seen or they have found that their you know, past hiring has evinced bias in terms of who's being hired and has kind of replicated, right, historical biases against women, people of color, et cetera. And they have this belief, you know, corporations have this belief that now bringing in automated hiring will actually result in bias-free hiring. But, you know, several headlines have already disproven this. So you had the recent case with Amazon where writers, you know, broke the story that they had created an automated hiring system, which actually turned out to be biased against women. And you can ask yourself, well, how could this happen, right? You know, this was a machine precisely created to be unbiased. But once again, that machine was created by humans. And, and while I don't know exactly the mechanism that resulted in that bias, I can guess at some of the mechanisms. So, for example, if in the Amazon case, for example, they had used the resumes of what they considered the top 10 performers as the training data for the algorithm, that actually could have been what biased the machine because determining the top 10 performers can be a biased exercise, especially if the majority of people you've hired in the past are of a certain gender, you know, male. That could then mean that, you know, statistically, your top 10 performers will be mostly male. So once you then use that as training data for an algorithm, the algorithm, whether you tell it that or not, will pick that up and will replicate that. So I think, you know, for that paper, I was really trying to put forth a case for really providing stronger protections in the law for when companies are using automated hiring, because I argue that they are not necessarily free of bias. Yeah, actually, could you expand a little bit on what are the current obligations of employers when they're applying these algorithms? Right. So that's a really excellent question, because as I mentioned earlier, the current legal protections for workers, so the current employment and labor laws, did not at all contemplate things like automated hiring. And as a result, there really aren't many obligations on the part of employers to ensure or to be aware of how the automated hiring 
is interacting with protected categories. So in a second paper that I'm writing, I'm actually arguing that there should be an auditing imperative as a matter of legal mandate that will ensure that corporations who do use automated hiring actually audit those systems on a regular basis. So what I mean by that is, you know, much like financial corporations now have an auditing requirement under the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, the same could be instituted for corporations who use automated hiring. And I'll tell you one funny story that I think really highlights the need for an auditing imperative. So this story was the story of an employment lawyer that was hired by a corporation, a large corporation that was planning to institute automated hiring in all its branches. And this corporation sort of had the foresight to say, well, before we just, you know, implement this technology, we should see how it works. We should see if it's actually working as intended and if it's actually in conformance with the law. So the employment lawyer then had the foresight himself to ask the automated hiring platform developers, can you do an audit that will basically discover for us what are the two most important variables of the chosen candidates from your system. So basically your system is choosing candidates for hire and telling us these are the best candidates to hire, but why exactly? And can you tell us what are the two top rated or two you know, most weighted variables used? The answer to the question was the candidate's name was Jared and the candidate had played high school lacrosse. Of course, it's very questionable what job would actually require high school lacrosse as a necessary qualification. And you might say that, hey, you know, being a team player is important in any job, but then why not other types of sports? Why was high school lacrosse weighted more than saying having played football or having played basketball? So, so these are problematic things that can be discovered, right, once you actually do the audits. So you've also written about a phenomenon that you call data as an oracle, as a critique on organizations' over-reliance on data. Can you tell us where organizations can get into trouble with this concept? So I see this a lot in automated hiring, right? Because, you know, think back to the scenario I painted for you where an organization is using its top 10 performance as essentially the standard for who should be hired in our organization. So first of all, in any organization, it's not only the top 10 performers that are useful, right? So does that mean you can never hire someone who's perhaps not a top 10 performer quantitatively, right, but then brings other things to the organization? So Data as Oracle is the idea that corporations can come to rely on things that are correlations and treat them as causations. So, for example, the top 10 performers are all male. Does that mean that their status of being male is what caused them to be top 10 performers? Or is it just that there was a correlation based on, say, they were in a male-dominated field, you know, to begin with, or that they had been historical bias in the company 
to hiring mostly male candidates. So I I think it's really important for corporations to really disentangle correlation from causation. So, you know, the social science mantra is really correlation is not causation. And any social science person in their first year of PhD really learns this lesson. But I think that's often forgotten when you come into the working world. Finally, and perhaps most alarmingly, your research discusses the concept of data washing, or using big data to disguise discrimination that is intentional. How can data be used this way, and what is our best defense against this? Right. So data washing, you know, people have defined that in different ways. So some people say data washing is a term for saying we're going to clean the data. We're going to take tainted data and clean the data. That's not how I define it. So when I say data washing, I am talking about, you know, the potential for corporations to use data-driven decision-making as a way to mask intentional discrimination. So this can happen, for example, like if a corporation says, well, we want people that went to specific schools. That on its face doesn't sound discriminatory, but that can actually be a way to discriminate against people from certain socioeconomic backgrounds and also against racial minorities or even women when you think about schools that have a lower proportion of women. So that's really what I mean, like choosing variables that are really actually proxies for protected categories. So what do I mean by protected categories, right? In the legal world, protected categories or protected classes refer to the types of people that are protected under certain statutes from discrimination. So Title VII protects certain types of people against discrimination in the workplace. So discrimination on the basis of like hiring or promotion. Title VII says racial minorities, women, also national origin, cannot be a basis for discrimination on when you're hiring or promoting someone. So people who belong in those categories or are part of those classes are protected. You know, similarly, other statutes protect other classes. So like Americans with Disabilities Act protects people who are disabled or who have a disability. But with data washing, what you have is because of machine learning, the potential to introduce variables that serve as proxies for protected categories. So instead of saying or writing a program for an algorithm where you're excluding women, that's a protected category and would be blatantly discriminatory and blatantly unlawful, you choose a variable that is highly correlated with gender. And even when we're dealing with some of these protected categories, tying it back to some of the wellness programs, I think I was amazed to realize that smoking itself wasn't a protected category. Right. So it's, of course, it's very important to understand in the law that there are very limited protected categories. So smoking is not a protected category, which means that in most states you can be fired for your status of being a smoker. You don't even have to smoke on the job. Uh, The same is true for obesity. In most states, you can also be fired 
for being overweight. Although there are now, you know, certain cases that also, especially certain states that have provided protections, especially relating to obesity, those protections are still limited. So, for example, the obesity protections really hinge on mobility. So if you're so obese as to be limited in your mobility, some states will then start to count that as a disability, which then offers you some protections. And so with regards to these proxy variables, what kind of legal framework would you recommend to combat this ability to use a proxy variable? Excellent question. So the Title VII does have a legal framework that starts to help, but I think that legal framework could be further strengthened. And I make those recommendations in the paradox of automation paper. So on the Title VII, you have what is called the disparate impact cause of action. So the disparate impact cause of action essentially allows for a case to be brought on the fact that some employment action has had a disparate impact on a protected group. So you're not saying, I know for sure that the employer is deliberately treating a protected group unfairly, but you're saying there is a pattern that a protected group has been disfavored by an employment action and that this warrants an explanation from the employer as to why that resulted. But an issue with the disparate impact cause of action is that uh, subsequent Supreme Court holdings has really made it difficult to show that pattern of a disproportionate impact. And in my paper, what I argue is for a doctrine of discrimination per se. So what that means is that you shouldn't have to show a very high pattern. Like, So the current regime right now is you basically have to show a really high pattern of disproportionate impact before you can bring a disparate impact cause of action. But I'm actually saying this shouldn't be the case. So I'm, I'm kind of switching the burden back on the employer. So I'm arguing that if we implement a discrimination per se doctrine, especially because of the fact that we have machine learning algorithms where it's like harder to see which variables are being used, we're saying that if when there has been an automated decision, there is some indication, and it doesn't have to be a high burden, that one protected group or several protected groups have been disfavored. This is now discrimination per se if the employer did not audit that system before using it. So this is kind of working hand in hand with the audit imperative. So if the employer had audited the algorithm before using it, then they would have discovered any kind of disproportionate impact and could have fixed it before implementing it on people. As such, if a person is able to show any kind of disproportionate impact, I'm arguing that under a discrimination per se doctrine, they should be able to bring suit and then have the burden shift back onto the employer to show that the use of that algorithm is not a way to sort of circumvent the protected class prohibitions. And so race, gender, and ethnicity seem like obvious categories that could be discriminated against using these techniques. But what other categories or groups should we be concerned about? So 
as part of my interviewing of formerly incarcerated people and really sort of getting to the nitty gritty with them in terms of thinking through like, what are the ways in that automated hiring can be used to call, right? Those types of people from applicant pools. One thing I realized was the use of gaps in employment. So instead of necessarily writing a program that says, oh, you need to ask someone if they've ever committed a crime, and then if that answer is in a binary yes or no, use that as a calling mechanism, some corporations will use gaps in employment. That is actually kind of a catch-all calling mechanism because not only, of course, would it call formerly incarcerated people who, because of their prison sentence, would have a gap in employment, but it would also call people who have stepped out of the workplace for reasons such as providing child care or providing elder care. And those people who provide child care and elder care are disproportionately women. And also, it could impact veterans who might have some gaps, you know, unexplainable gaps in in employment. Although now the military is pretty good at, at helping veterans not have gaps in employment, but actually discrimination against veterans is still a problem. And these automated hiring systems can actually, could actually facilitate that discrimination. And you've previously spoken about how it can be even as simple as a drop down for the year of birth in a job application. Yeah, so it's really important to think through, you know, the the calling mechanisms and automated decision making for hiring that we might not even be aware of. So one case that actually came out of the state of Massachusetts was a man who went to apply for a job and realized that the job was asking for a graduation year, but the graduation year had a cutoff such that he could not enter his graduation year because his graduation year was earlier than the cutoff. And that's really sort of like a backhand way of enacting age discrimination. And so what are some of the new ways that employers are using technology within the hiring process beyond just our typical resume screening? Up till now, the main function of automated hiring has been really to screen resumes. So you have really resume parsing algorithms that search for certain keywords, right? And will upvote certain resumes and downvote certain others or yellow light some, you know, resumes for further screening. But now you actually have the development of other types of technologies, the most recent of which is probably the video interview screening. So companies like HireVue are doing video screening of candidates. And what that means is that the candidate is videotaped during the interview, and then that interview video is algorithmically analyzed for certain behavioral characteristics, eye contact, facial expressions, body language, and then that individual is evaluated based on those uh, variables. And what are some of the dangers potentially with analyzing just those variables? Well, past research has shown that body language analysis is really a fraught science, particularly because it's so culturally contingent. And as a result, you really have to think about the standard of which the the person's body language is being judged. So if a racial minority is being judged by a body standards that's different from their group, 
then their body language could be misinterpreted or misread or judged negatively because they don't exhibit the same types of body language. So like some studies have shown that, you know, non-Westerners don't smile as often as Westerners, especially Americans are probably the smilingest bunch. But that obviously isn't an indication of lack of friendliness. But that could be misread, right, by an American standard if the interviewee is a non-American. And then there's also been issues, you know, because a lot of the technology is facial recognition. So there's a lot of issues with the efficacy uh, of the facial recognition because the facial recognition wasn't necessarily trained on a wide range of faces. That can become an issue, especially when the person is on a outskirts or the other spectrum from what the facial recognition was trained on. So looking forward, what role do you think that employers have in implementing these technologies? So that's a great question because obviously most employers want to be at the forefront, right, of technological implementation. You know, corporations don't want to feel that they're lagging behind in using innovative technology. So there's a great temptation to jump on new technologies, especially when the technologies are promising, you know, bias reduction or promising that they're an intervention for legal issues. But I think employers and corporations need to be very thoughtful as they're implementing these technologies and really need to I would say engage with experts who have studied these technologies to really think through if the technologies are are actually able to deliver what they're promising. And I think the law can actually be helpful in also providing an auditing imperative where the, the corporations then have a way to audit this technology. So in my paper, in my next paper that I'm working on, which is an auditing imperative for automated hiring systems, I argue both for an internal auditing process and also an external auditing process. So not only would employers be mandated to put their automated hiring through internal audits, but I'm hoping that there would be an entity where, you know, employers can pay to have their hiring system that they're using essentially verified, much like, you know, you would have a building verified as like environmentally safe, you know, the LEED certification. So it would be the same idea where employers can have their algorithms verified as something that is largely free of bias uh, or something that has been really thought through in terms of ensuring that it's not going to be overly biased against certain protected groups. And so what's next for your research? I heard you received good news recently about an NSF grant. My NSF career award was recently recommended for funding. And that research money is really going to help me delve into the next phase of my research, which is looking at the development of these types of technologies. So thus far, I've really focused on the legal implications of these types of technologies and really their effects on the workplace. And for my next phase of research, I'm going to be working with people who are developing hiring technologies to really understand what sort of design elements are going into these technologies, how those design elements are contemplated or conceptualized, and what sort of ethical guidelines are guiding the designs of these technologies. 
This has been a really fascinating topic to research, and I'm really glad that you're studying this because I think it's really at the forefront of how we implement technology in the future. You have a book coming out called The Quantified Worker. What can readers expect from it? So my book, The Quantified Worker, is under contract with the Cambridge University Press. And that book is through the law series. So it's, it's really a law-centric book, really focusing on how the law mediates technology in the workplace. And it's really focused on emerging technologies such as you know, automated hiring, wearable tech, genetic testing, and really looking at what is the role of the law in mediating how workers are experiencing the implementation of these technologies and what is the role of law in ensuring that workers' rights are still protected in the use of these technologies. And so here's a popular question that we have asked guests in the past. What is an idea or topic that you've recently changed your mind on? What I've really changed my mind about is the idea that all problems can be solved with technology. So I'm definitely someone who is fascinated by technology. I'm definitely, you know, a sci-fi geek. And, and I envision a world where we have all this like technologically advanced solutions. But more and more, as I have, you know, done a lot of research on technology, I've often come back to the idea that this isn't really a technological problem, but really something that can be solved without technology. So I think... You know, as a society, as we progress technologically, I don't want us to come to a point where we see nails everywhere because we have hammers, right? So meaning like just because we have the technology doesn't necessarily mean the technology is needed in all instances. So I think really shying away from techno-solutionism and really thinking through problems thoughtfully and thinking what the best approach to those problems are without necessarily always reflexively reaching for technology as a solution. And is there a place that uh, listeners can learn more about you? Sure. I am on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at I-A-J-U-N-W-A. I'm also on a website that has all my legal research and also upcoming peer-reviewed research. And that website is ifamaajunwa.com. So you can find all my work there. I'm also on SSRN.com. So you can find a repository of my published research there. And for our listeners, we'll put a link to those in the description of this episode. Professor Ajunwa, this was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for being a guest on Present Value. It has been my pleasure. Thank you. The Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by the Present Value team, Michael Brady, Harrison Job, Bernardo Espinoza, Caroline Wright, Serena Olavia, James Feld, and Jack Moriarty. I'm your host for this episode, Jonathan Tin. Our engineer was Sam Lupowitz. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Special thanks to Cornell's Language Resource Center and Resonate Recordings for their technical assistance. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.